Would you turn in your Bibles with me to Titus 1? And we're going to look at uh, verses 5 through 9 this morning. So uh, this is a passage that's about uh, qualifications for elders. And I believe in elders. Uh, I am a teaching elder in our denomination. But what I want to do this morning is to think about what Paul is more generally saying about the kinds of leaders uh, the church deeply needs and the kinds of leaders that God loves to use. That's kind of how I want to approach it this morning. But I'm going to read it for us, and then we'll, I'll pray, and then we'll dive in. All right, Titus 1, starting verse 5. Here's what Paul writes. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine, and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Let me pray for us, and then we're going to dive in. Let's pray. Father, we, do, we, we thank you and we praise you that you have loved us well, uh, loved us so well that you gave us your word. Lord, we don't have to guess what your thoughts are. We don't have to guess what you're like or what your ways are. Lord, you've told us, you've shown yourself. Lord, I, I pray that you would show yourself to us anew or afresh uh, this morning. Lord, teach us, be our teacher. Lord, uh, convict us, be the one who leads us to the joy of repentance. Lord, work deep things in us, subversive things that uh, make our lives more about the kingdom and more in awe of the gospel. Lord, we need you to do this in us. And Lord, we pray that as we think about this passage this morning, Lord, show us Jesus. Father, would you help us to be more in awe and in love with Jesus as we look at this passage this morning. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. So one of my favorite things written in the last several years uh, is an article by one of my favorite writers, Jonathan Franzen. It's in the New York Times, but the article is simply called, he, he was writing about Facebook, Twitter, social media. The article is called, Liking is for Cowards, Go for What Hurts. And he's setting up this contrast between kind of the easy uh, way that we do narcissistic, way that we do technology and social media versus actual relationships and real love. And I'm just going to read what he says. It's a little bit long, but I love it, so I'm going to read it. Here's what he writes. He says, I may be overstating the case a little bit. Very probably you're sick to death of hearing social media disrespected by cranky 51-year-olds. My aim here is mainly to set up a contrast between the narcissistic tendencies of technology and the problem of actual love. My friend Alice Siebold likes to talk about getting down in the pit and loving somebody She has in mind the dirt that love inevitably splatters on the mirror of our self-regard. The simple fact of the matter is that trying to be perfectly likable is incompatible with loving relationships. Sooner or later, for example, you're going to find yourself in a hideous screaming fight, and you'll hear coming out of your mouth things that you yourself don't like at all, things that shatter your self-image as a fair, kind, cool, attractive, in-control, funny, likable person. Something realer than likability has come out in you, and suddenly you're having an actual life. Suddenly there's a real choice to be made, not a fake consumer choice between a BlackBerry and an iPhone, but a question, do I love this person? And for the other person, does this person love me? 
What I love about Franzen writes is I think he's setting up this contrast that we really struggle with today between what we could call image, living in a way that makes me look good, that makes me likable, and integrity, which is actually being what we're supposed to be, what God wants us to be. Image that sort of says, I don't care about being good, I want to look good, versus integrity that says, I don't care about looking good, I want to be good, I want to be what God wants me and calls me to be. The way that I've been thinking about it as I've been studying this passage is uh, we could, to use uh, the words of Bright Eyes, the singer Bright Eyes, uh, image says, I want a lover I don't have to love. Because all I really care about is that you think well of me versus integrity, which says, I am a lover because I've been loved. I've been loved by Jesus, and it's going to change me in ways that are deep and true. And here's why this is important for me, because I think when we come to a passage like this, if we come in the name of image, which is something we all struggle with and swim in, just check your latest Instagram or your latest tweet, then we're going to come to this passage and say, the way we read it is going to say, I want to look like a good husband or wife. I want to look like a good dad or mom. I want to look like a good neighbor or member of the community. Versus integrity, which says, I don't care how I look. I want to be a good spouse. I want to be a good dad or mom. I want to be, you know, a good neighbor or member of my community, my neighborhood, my, the city. Um, and the way that I, I think part of what this list does, this list is all about integrity. It's all about the latter. It's all about the way that the, the unseen, the mundane, the parts of our lives that, we, you don't, that don't get put on Instagram. Um, and the way that and it's interesting because it's sub, because of that it's subversive. And when we, when we begin to think about what it means to be, you know, thinking about leadership from this passage, part of what image does is sort of says, "Hey, all that matters is you look successful." But integrity is going to say, "This is what a leader is. A leader is someone who loves well. A leader is simply put, someone who loves well, whether he's out in public or at home, or she's, you know, at the grocery store or at." you know, with crying kids. A leader is someone who loves well. Now, what's interesting, though, the, the way that Paul's going to break down this passage is that, you know, it's going to be a little bit subversive, beautifully subversive. Because when's the last TED Talk you've ever heard in, like, being a good dad or, like, being a good husband? And yet, Paul is saying, like, that's all what leadership and integrity is about. So the way I want to do it is thinking about what, you know, a leader is someone who loves well. Well, what do we love well? What is the kind of leader that God loves to use, what do they love? And there are five things I want to talk about quickly this morning. The first is implicit, the other four explicit. Thinking about that idea of what we love, leaders that God loves to use, uh, what we love. And we, the honest truth is we love what he loves. But let's start with the first, loving the church. This is the one that's implicit. Because here's the deal, Paul has just been to Crete, this island in Greece, and he's come back and all he can think about and talk about is the local church there. Now, as someone who's just been to Greece, like, that's not me. Like, all I want to talk about since I've been to Greece, we took a spring break trip with RUF, all I want to talk about is the food. Is the food. Uh, if I had been to an island in Greece, all I would want to be talking about is, like, you have to see these beaches. They are incredible. The last thing that I want to talk about is, like, the local church, the state of the local church there. And this is where I get a little convicted because Paul is saying, Titus, look for men within the church that love the local church in all of its unsexiness, in all of its 
ugliness and all of its, with all of its flaws. And I think for you and I, that's a word. Because for me, if you're like me, it's easy for you to love preachers. It's easy for you to love writers. It's easy for you to love podcasts. But it's hard for you to love the local church. Because it doesn't give you everything you think you want. Uh, the way that I was thinking about it is, you know, I don't know if you ever watched Seinfeld or not, but if you, remember, if you watched the show Seinfeld, you remember how Seinfeld would break, how Jerry would break up with girls over really seemingly narcissistic and, and, and unimportant details? Like there was one girl he broke up with because she smelled like soup. There was one girl he broke up with because she had man hands. There was one girl he broke up with because she was a close talker. There's a way, don't Seinfeld the church. Because there are things that you could easily, you don't like the music, you don't like the preaching, you don't like the childcare situation, you don't like the space, you don't like the, you, you can have a list, you can substitute whatever it is for you. And I love what, uh, in RUF, we have a guy, Bebo Elkin, who's one of the founders of RUF, and he used to say to us all the time, if Jesus loved the church enough to die for her, you can love the church enough to be patient with her. So first, we're called, Paul is saying, look, Titus, look for leaders who love the local church, and then the second thing, this is where it gets more explicit. He says, look for leaders who love their families, who love their families well. And that's a two-fold deal. On the one hand, it involves loving for those of us who are married, loving our spouses. On the other hand, for those of us who are parents, it involves loving our kids. Now, let me say, I want to say something to those of you, because I think the church has failed singles. And I want to say, as someone who, ha- who happens to be married and has kids, I'm sorry that sometimes we make singleness sort of feel like being on Misfit Island to spend the rest of your days with Hermie, and like you don't know where you fit as a person or in the church. And like Paul himself, we forget, easily forget that Paul himself was absolutely single, and like, who, Lord, there was something beautiful about that calling that reflected the beauty of the Lord and the beauty of the love of the Lord in ways that someone, those who are married with kids can't. So I just want to sort of say I'm sorry that I don't think what Paul is saying is you need to be, to be a leader you have to be married and have kids. I don't think that's what he's saying. And sometimes in certain corners of our world, we act like that. So I want to sort of say that first. But I do want to say what I think Paul is saying is that for those of us who are married and for those of us who do have kids, he's got something to say. And it's that we have a job to do. And that job is, that job is to love them well. First, our spouses. Now, it's interesting because we read this and we think when he says be a, hus- a husband of one wife... Like, we don't live in a society that does polygamy. Like, I don't think the reality for you or for me is you're going to struggle with, do I take two wives or three or one? And I think sometimes we read that and we think, oh, well, he means faithfulness. And we sort of say that means we, we don't do certain things, we don't cheat, we don't look at certain things online, which is absolutely true. But can I say, I think part of what he's saying is he's saying to look for men who understand what marriage is about, look for women who understand what marriage is about in terms of those leaders that God loves to use. And part of what he's saying is, what a counselor said to me a few, like a few months ago, that I can tell you all the right things about what marriage is supposed to be. Like I can say marriage is for my holiness, not for my happiness. Marriage is for you know, sanctification, not my satisfaction. I can say all the right things, but the reality is I still approach my marriage as someone who believes it exists for me, who believes that, that my marriage should fulfill me in ways that like, my wife could never fulfill, that only Jesus can fulfill me. And my guess is that those of you who are married do the same, where it's easy to, to misunderstand that part of your marriage is for the church, which is interesting because that's why Paul, I think, roots all of this in the church, because there's a reality in which there's a day coming in which the church is the only family we will have. 
Because in the new heavens and new earth, Paul, Jesus says we're not going to be married because the only relationship in the new heavens and new earth is brothers and sisters worshiping Jesus together. And that there's something about my marriage and your marriage that is supposed to reflect the beauty of that, but it's also for the church because you need to see my wife and I working things out. And it would probably be good if we could see each other's fight so we could kind of know, like, well, don't get the pretty version, get, like, the real version because we need the hope that Jesus is doing something in us that is bigger than us. But then he also says it includes our, our kids. And this is the part of this passage that's really been messing with me when he says children, of believer, uh, who's, children are believers and not given to debauchery or insubordination. Because is he saying literally you cannot be literally an elder or shouldn't be any kind of a leader unless your kids are believers? And for me, if I'm being honest with you, I, I don't, my kids are young, but I don't know where they are. And I think, you know, we had a moment a few weeks ago where my wife wasn't feeling, was sick. One of our kids was sick, so we were doing that thing, like, do we go today or not go today? And we had originally said we're not going today. And one of my kids gleefully ran downstairs to tell the other kids, guess what, guys, we're not going to church today. <laughs> and I thought, oh, where have I failed? Um, because Sunday morning, if I'm being honest with you, Sunday morning for us is less getting ready for church, is less Little House in the Prairie, and is way more Lord of the Flies, where it's like there is fighting going on. And I, if I'm being honest with you, I don't know what to do with that. And I think part of what, I think what, part, what, what Paul is saying is that, of course, as our children, if our children grow up not to, to be believers, there's always room for in, you know, looking into our own hearts and looking at the job we did. But he's not saying... He's not saying that in every case that equals unfaithful parenting. Because I think the reality is, is we, in this world that we live in, and, and there are men and women that we love and respect who were absolutely faithful to be spiritual leaders of their home, and their kids did not, do not know Jesus. That faithfulness in parenting doesn't always equal automatically our kids are going to be Christians so I was thinking about this. I was thinking about um, Jack Miller. Jack Miller's big in our denomination. He's written things that have been huge for me. And he's got a daughter. He had a, uh, has a daughter named Barbara. And Barbara, she, I was watching this interview the other day where she basically grew up under him in a Christian home. But at 18, she said, I don't believe any of this. I don't believe God is real. I'm going to go do my own thing. And she did. For years and years, she sort of went really, really wild. She talks about it in the interview a little bit. And then she has this moment where, but her parents, Jack and her, and her mom, Rosemary, loved her well the whole time. They engaged her. They kept pursuing her. Even as she made horrible decisions, they kept reaching out with the love of the gospel. And she had this moment where her dad was about to go to Uganda, and he thought that going to Uganda was going to mean he was probably going to die there. That was uh, an intense kind of war going on at the time. And because of this, he got really honest with her. And here's her telling of what he said to her that began to change things. He simply said this. He said, I don't want to take you to heaven with me just as a beautiful memory. I know you can't make yourself a Christian, but would you pray this one prayer with me? God, would you please reveal yourself to me? And she said that was she, that she did. She still didn't want to be a Christian, but she, something in her wanted to pray that prayer, and she became a Christian. And I think part of what Paul is saying is that, you know, there's a way in which loving our children well simply means faithfully bringing before them the gospel and praying for God to do, praying for God to do what He alone can do, which is save. In the same way as that we all are miracles, it's all we're all. If we're a Christian, it's a miracle that we're a Christian. So first, Paul's telling Titus to look for leaders who love the church, love their family. But thirdly, 
He's, he's telling Titus to look for leaders who love their community. And I mean that at the macro level, you love your city, love your neighborhood, but also at the micro level, love your neighbor. And that's where he talks about loving, be lovers of what is good, and he talks about being hospitable, right? Now, it's interesting because I think there's a way of hiding behind your family in a way where you don't love your community, and there's also a way of hiding behind your community in ways where you don't love your family. And this is where the tension begins to build, if you're listening, of what Paul is sort of saying, maturity, growth, leadership, and Christian life looks like. There are all these tensions. Loving the church, loving your family, loving your community. It's going to get worse. And I think we begin to feel a little bit of the weight of it. But what Paul is saying is he's telling Titus to look for men who say, not my life for me, and live selfishly and indulgently, but who say, because they know Jesus and are following him, my life for yours. And they're saying that within the church, they're saying that within the family, but they're also saying that within their community. Another way of saying this is Paul is telling Titus to look for men who love Crete, and who love Cretans. And for us, this is what, I think this is a little bit of what it looks like. Do you love your neighborhood? Do you love your neighbors? Do you love Columbia? Do you have a Columbia shirt? <laughs> That's not, you can, wear, you can wear that shirt and not love Columbia. Uh, but he's saying, be the kind of person who gets to know the names of your kids' friends at school and their parents, and you have them over. Be the kind of person that doesn't do, I love the way one comedian, he's mocking the state farm thing, or he says, like a good neighbor, stay over there. <laughs> and I love that because I think sometimes that's what I do, where I'm like, hey, let's just, what a good neighbor is, you politely wave and maybe occasionally bring over cookies once every year. But like what he's saying is you get, to, you get beyond that, where maybe you, you know their names and have them over. This was recently backfired for me because uh, I found out that one of our, the guy ne- right next door to me thinks my name is Sonny. <laughs> and uh, he, calls, he calls me Sonny, and it's really bothering me because I'm like, you know my name, but it's also like I haven't loved him very well. And there are reasons for that. Um, <laughs> look at me just un- showing myself as not a Christian. Um, but I recently went home for this, an engagement party for one of my friends who's getting married. I grew up in Sumter. And this came home to me at this party because I'm at this party and there are two things happening. One is it's all the parents of the kids I went to school with plus all the parents of the kids I went to church with. And for me as an introvert, that is my, like a party is already a nightmare enough, but a party where like everyone knows me and is going to want to talk to me at some point is like a special nightmare. And so I'm at this party but there's this man at this party who has been dear to me. He's actually an elder in the PCA church in Sumter, and he has loved me and my family well. He supported us through seminary. He supported us you know, in RUF. And he's there, and I'm having two thoughts as I'm leaving. One is a self-righteous thought that Jesus invited me to repent of, which is, I think, I think I'm better than these people because I get the gospel, which is so makes me think I don't get the gospel. Because you can't say, I'm better than you, I get the gospel, right? And then the other one is, this man has endured weekend upon weekend upon weekend of shallow, what I think is dumb conversation, because he loves them. And it's not because he's like doesn't see it. It's not because like he's a part of it. It's because he believes Jesus has called him to love the people around him. And that was super convicting to me, because Paul's telling Titus, those are the kind of men he wants them to look for. Uh, so first, the kinds of leaders God loves to use, love the church, love their family, love their community. But then fourth, and this is where I want you to just give me a second to say it and then explain what I mean, 
is the leaders that God loves to use love themselves. Now, I don't mean selfishly. I don't mean a sort of a selfish spirituality. I do mean self-care. I think we can make a distinction between self-love in bad, sinful ways and self-care in good ways that even Jesus himself exhibited. So like if you think about Jesus, uh, he's at the party and, and one of the first miracles in John and the wine is running out and Jesus does that thing where he turns the water into wine and he saves the best, the very, very best wine for last. And yet Jesus shows that self-control Paul talks about where he doesn't, like Noah, in cynicism or despair, get drunk. Or think about Jesus with the crowds. He loved the crowds. He fed the crowds, but he had moments where he said no to the crowds, and he withdrew to be alone with the Father and simply pray. Or he withdrew sometimes just to take a nap, which is like my favorite, I think this is my favorite passage in the gospel where Jesus is taking a nap. Because what he's saying is part of what, Jesus had a body. He still has a body. We have a body. You know, there's an old Scottish uh, pastor Robert Merrick Shane, who I like a lot, and he used to say this thing that I used to take to heart. He would say to pastors, your people's greatest need is your own personal holiness. And I think, yeah, absolutely. And I used to think that holiness just meant reading your Bible a lot, praying a lot. But can we say part of holiness is, is the way you treat your body? That part of holiness is, 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 you know, this is why sometimes the most spiritual thing you can do is to take a nap. Because taking a nap is saying two things. It's saying, I'm a, a limited being, a finite being who needs rest. And also, I'm under the care of an infinite being who not only loves me deeply, but rules the world with grace and wisdom. And there's a sense in which self-care, that's why Paul uses those words, discipline, holiness, involves us doing what we could simply call self-care. This is where I am thankful that the Gospels don't include a line about Jesus doing CrossFit, because I do think... CrossFit would become even more insufferable for those of you who were part of it. Um, but it does include taking care of our bodies in ways that are glorifying to the Lord. So first, the leaders that God loves to use love the church, love their family, love their community, love themselves in the ways that Jesus calls them to, in the ways that are good for the kingdom. But then lastly, they love the word. That's where Paul does that thing where he talks about sound doctrine. He talks about uh, what we could simply call, you know, being able to rightly divide the word of truth. Uh, in other words, you know, part of what he's saying is look for men who know, who know Scripture, who know the word of God, but who, can we say it like this, also know the God of the word. There's a sense in which uh, it's interesting what he does is when he says, and John mentioned it earlier, when he says that Scripture is trustworthy. Now, it's funny because there aren't so many places, the way he puts that phrase I think he's going back to what John preached last week where he says that God never lies. And part of what he is saying is that when we come to Scripture, we can trust what we find there. We can trust the promises that God makes, that he's never going to break them. We can trust his taken things. We can trust what he says to us is true and right and good because we can trust the Word of God because we've come to trust the God of the Word. That's when we talk about sound doctrine, when we talk about the Word, we sometimes do this funny thing, or at least if you're like me, you think, maybe this means I need to become more knowledgeable. And I think I would absolutely say growing in your knowledge of Scripture, growing in your knowledge of good theology is, is great, it's vital. But there's also this other part of it that James talks about where we are also called to be obedient to what we already know. We're also called, because what is obedience? Obedience, which is a word that some of us hate, is simply this, trusting God with what he says about you and what he says he wants you 
to do and to be. Uh, when I was in Charlotte in seminary, I lived with a professor and his wife, which was already a, a weird situation because like, we lived upstairs and they lived downstairs, and that was uncomfortable in and of itself. Sometimes my professor would wake up and he'd be in his boxers and he'd get like saltines and cut cheese, and you would be like, it was actually kind of humanizing because you'd be like, oh, this man who is a profound theologian also loves cheese crackers. Um, <laughs> But we would do this thing where they would, it was really awkward at the time, but we would, they, we would pray together on Tuesday nights. And they, we did that thing where, and the first time we did it, I was really thrown because they were the kind of people who were like, let's pray. And then they got on their knees and prayed. And I was like still sitting down, not knowing what to do with, like, do I get on my knees? What do I do? But I'll never forget what she, Mrs. Kelly prayed one time. She was talking about a younger girl that they, that they knew from their hometown. And she simply prayed this line. She said, Lord, I pray that, you would tr- that she would trust you with her obedience. And I've always loved that line because if, if you're like me, the thing that I need most right now is not necessarily more knowledge, but I need the Lord to help me to trust him with my obedience to what I know, what he's already shown me. And that's part of what Paul is saying is to look for men who trust the Lord with their obedience, who not only know scripture but are faithful to it. Um, now, let me close like this. At this point for me, I keenly am aware of all the ways I fall short of this, of the ways I fall short of loving the church. Like, it already happened to people mentioning, like, you're on time today. And I thought, oh, that kills me because you know that I'm always late. <laughs> loving your family, loving your community, holding these, loving, taking care of yourself, loving the word. I hope you feel the weight of what integrity means, of what not looking good but being good actually means. And I hope you understand what the gospel says to us is that the only person who passes the integrity of this list is Jesus. Like Jesus is the only one who can say all of these things that, yes, Father, I love them well. And you and I, we cannot say that with Jesus because we have loved imperfectly. We have not, in many of these places, we have not loved well. And when I was reading this passage, and those two lines that Paul says, above reproach, above reproach, I really start, what does that mean? And I think this is what it means. That to be above reproach does not mean to be beyond repentance. In fact, it's the opposite. To be a person who's above reproach means you are the kind of person who is constantly repenting. You are constantly, in, you are constantly inviting Jesus into your life and saying, Jesus, show me the ways I am not loving well. And Lord, forgive me and help me to follow you. And because I'm loved by you as I am, help me begin to love like you as you do. I'll close with this. Um, I, uh, one of my favorite things to do with my kids is we love Shel Silverstein poems until you like, look in the back and you see Shel Silverstein's face and then they have deep nightmares. But one of my favorite Shel Silverstein poems is a poem simply called Love. And now like, I, can't, I didn't want to like, bring it up because I thought that would be a little bit awkward. But let me give you the image, because the shell servicing poem, you know, the image is important. The image is simply of this little kid holding up a sign with a big V on it. The poem's called Love, and here's how it goes. Ricky was L, but he's home with the flu. Lizzie, our O, had some homework to do. Mitchell, E, probably got lost in the way. So I'm all of love that could make it today. Here's why I love that. A leader is somebody who loves well. But they know that They know that their love is imperfect and flawed, but they also know that as imperfect and flawed as their love is, it deeply matters because 
that love is a signpost that points to the love of the one who is love. And because of that, it deeply, deeply matters. Let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you um, that you are love. We thank you that you have loved us well. Lord, would you please do a work in us where we, you help us to begin to love our church, to love our families, to love our communities, to love even ourselves, and to love your word in the ways that you love. Lord, would you do this work in you? We need your grace and your wisdom. We pray these things, Lord Christ, in your name. Amen.